0: About 50 years ago, here in Houston, there was a church with a solid evangelical doctrinal statement. They preached expository sermons, and they had a young pastor who was very zealous about evangelism. And this pastor, as he looked at his community, saw a need. There were, at that time, a lot of young people who were in the hippie culture, and he wanted to introduce them to Jesus. And so one night, he let some of these hippies stay in the church parking lot while he spoke with them about the Lord. Well, the church did not take kindly to this, because those hippies were not the sort of people that this fine, upstanding church wanted to be associated with. So they fired the pastor, and they continued about their business. A few years later, one day they looked up and they noticed that the demography of the neighborhood around their church had changed. It was a good deal more ethnically diverse than it used to be. And being uninterested in ministering to their new, more diverse neighbors, the church decided it was time to move to another building where they stayed for about 20 years until that neighborhood diversified. Then it was time to move again because they wanted to be around people just like them, people who were a good fit for the church, people who were worthy of their attention, their evangelism, their, their discipleship and fellowship, But other folks, eh, we're not so interested in them. Now, that's a true story about a church that still exists in our city today. And I wish I could tell you that this was an isolated story, but it's not. Because elitism is as old as the hills. And it's pervasive in every culture and society across world history. Now, the Bible tells us elitism is a terrible sin, especially when it's practiced among the people of God. And what we're going to see this morning as we continue our study in Matthew's Gospel is that Jesus is not an elitist. Instead, Jesus, when he walked the earth, spent time with the marginalized, with the outcasts, with the disreputable. And as Jesus associated with and ministered to society's cast-offs, he rejected the elitists because of their self-righteousness. That's what we'll see today in Matthew Chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. And in this morning's passage, we're going to see a very famous scene. I think it's an often misunderstood scene. We're going to learn that Jesus is the friend of sinners, but we're going to ponder what exactly that means as we consider three points today. Number one, we're going to see that Jesus summons unlikely people to follow him. Number two, Jesus has come to spiritually heal sinners. And number three, we're going to see that Jesus has inaugurated a new and unique and glorious path of joy for his disciples. So let's start with our first point now, in which we see that Jesus summons unlikely people to follow him. As we begin today, Jesus is again in the little town of Capernaum, which has become his home base. And you might remember from last week, Jesus has just performed a spectacular miracle. A paralyzed man was brought to him and he told this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. But some of the religious teachers were sitting there and they saw this and they said, that's blasphemy because only God can forgive sin. And then Jesus showed he indeed had the authority to forgive sin by supernaturally healing the paralyzed man on the spot. And this astonished the people of Capernaum. Now we come to verse 9 of Matthew chapter 9, and we read, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples leave the house where this miracle was performed, and they're walking through Capernaum. Mark tells us more about this scene. He says, They went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So Jesus leads his disciples and this big crowd of hangers-on, and he says, let's go down to the shore. And they go down to the shore, and he takes them to a particular place. He takes them to the tax office. Now, the purpose of this tax office was to get money from anybody who imported goods across the Sea of Galilee into the region of Galilee. And because the economy of this little town of Capernaum was dependent on the Sea of Galilee, this tax office would have been responsible for regularly taking money from the hard-working people of Capernaum, saying, We want your cash. And citizens in this crowd who were following Jesus had doubtless had this experience of being shaken down by the tax office. Certainly some of Jesus' disciples had had this experience. We learned back in chapter 4 that four of Jesus' disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were fishermen who worked on the Sea of Galilee, the very place this office existed, the tax. So this tax office would not be a place of happy memories for many of the people following Jesus. This is sort of like how we feel when we have to deal with the IRS or when you get called by Ben CAD. right? It doesn't leave you feeling warm and fuzzy. But as much as we might dislike paying taxes, believe it or not, these people had even more reason to dislike the tax office than we do. Because in the ancient world, tax officers were infamous for corruption. They worked on a commission. They got a cut of whatever they were able to get. And so they had a huge incentive to overcharge. And if you didn't want to pay the high rate, well, you could always just pay them a bribe, right? So there's corruption. But beyond that, these tax collectors in first-century Israel were even more hated because where did the money they collect go? It went to the Romans, right? It's bad enough if you have to pay money to your own government. It's a lot worse when you have to write a check to the foreign oppressors who are dominating your society, right? And so the people accompanying Jesus would see this tax office as an odious, as a despicable place, and yet Jesus has led them here. Why? Well, in this tax office is a man named Matthew. Now, if you read Mark and Luke, you'll find something a little different here. Both of those other Gospels call this man Levi. But a comparison of this passage with those passages makes it pretty clear that Matthew here is the same fellow as Levi. You might say, well, why does he have two different names? Well, a lot of people in the New Testament had multiple names, right? We've got Simon, who was called Peter, who was called Cephas. And we've got John Mark, and we've got Judas, not the traitor, the other Judas. Judas went by Thaddeus, and we've got Nathaniel, who went by Bartholomew. So there were a lot of, this was apparently like an accepted custom in that day that you had different names you used in different contexts. And so here Levi is Matthew, and Matthew is in the tax office. Now we're going to see in just a minute. Matthew clearly had influence over the other tax collectors connected to this office. He was rich. He had a nice house. So it's likely that Matthew wasn't just a tax man. It's likely Matthew was the tax man. And now think about how the people in Capernaum, in this crowd with Jesus, even in the inner circle with Jesus, would have thought about Matthew. They would have known who he was. He's the Jew who represents the Romans. He got rich and is living in that nice mansion because he fleeces us out of our money. The Jews would have said, He is a traitor. He is a collaborator. He is the lowest kind of filth. And there are a lot of people in this crowd who would have probably really liked to see something terrible happen to Matthew. And now Jesus comes face to face with Matthew. What's going to happen? Is Jesus going to denounce him? Is Jesus going to use his supernatural power that he's been displaying in this town for weeks to destroy this figure of villainy? What's going to happen? Verse 9, Jesus said to him, follow me. Jesus invites Matthew to become his disciple. And make no mistake, this is not simply an invitation to become part of the big crowd. This is an invitation to become part of Jesus' inner circle. And we know that because this is the exact same way. Jesus summoned Andrew and Peter back in chapter 4. He said to them, follow me. And this would have been astonishing to everybody who saw it. Jesus is the teacher who's been talking about what the righteous demand of God is. And he calls Matthew. And what happens? And Matthew rose and followed him. Matthew got up. He walked out of the office, and he began following Jesus. They might say, well, this is really strange. Jesus just walks up to this guy and says, follow me. And he goes, why would Matthew do this? Well, remember, Capernaum's a small town. It's about a tenth the size of Sugarland. At this point, after weeks of Jesus performing miracles, everybody in the city would have known who Jesus is. Matthew knows who Jesus is. And when he hears this call, he says, I've got to respond to this. He's happy to obey. Now Luke adds some detail here. He says in Luke 5, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And I think this is a very clear depiction of the right response to the call of Christ. Jesus told us what the right response to him is back in chapter 4. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God has begun to bring this rebellious world to heal by sending Jesus, his long-promised Messiah. And the right response to Jesus is we must turn away from our lives of sin and turn to Jesus in faith. And that's what Matthew does here. He leaves his life of sin. He leaves his corrupt job. He leaves his ill-gotten gains. He gets up and he follows Jesus because Jesus called him. And this would have been shocking to the crowd. Anybody who knew Matthew would have thought, that guy's got no business hanging out in a Jewish rabbi's group, right? We might wonder, why did Jesus choose Matthew? We find the answer in John chapter 18, where Jesus, in prayer, speaks to the Father about His disciples, and He calls them those who you gave Me. That's what He says to the Father. That's who Jesus is picking. People who were chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world. And why did the Father choose these people? Not because they had any particular merit. Not because of any choice that they had make or would make. Not because of anything within them. No. The Father sovereignly elects people for His own purposes. And friends, that's still true today. Jesus calls those whom the Father has chosen. Not because of any merit in us. Say, I don't know what I think about this. Listen very carefully to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. God doesn't call us because we're great. God calls us because he is great. And how does our calling show that God is great? Because God chooses what the world looks down on. You know, friends, if the elites of this world were drafting a team, most of us would not be the first pick. Most of us would not even be on the backup squad. Because most of us don't have the characteristics that the world values, right? We don't have the great resume. We don't have the glamorous headshot. We don't have the enviable financials. But that's the point. God doesn't pick who the world would pick because God has contempt for the false arrogance of this world and its corrupt wisdom. So God rejects the world's criteria and He lovingly chooses those whom He wills by His own criterion. He doesn't pick us because we deserve it. He picks us out of His amazing grace. And because this choice is not responsive to anything within us, in the end, none of us will be able to boast before God. So Jesus chooses Unlikely people, like Matthew. You know, back at ancient Capernaum High School, he probably would have been the winner of least likely to follow Jesus. Believing friends, Jesus chose him, and if you know Jesus, Jesus has chosen you. Now, If you say, well, if I look at my life, I can see 10 million reasons why Jesus shouldn't pick me. I've got good news for you. Jesus knows you better than you do. And Jesus knows even more reasons than you know for why he shouldn't pick you. But you know what? He picked you anyway if you're a believer. Not because you deserve it, but because he's that great. And this should cause two reactions in us. Immense gratitude and immense humility. Tragically, these reactions are sorely lacking among God's people too often. And that's because it's easy to forget who we were before we knew Jesus how vile our sin was, how much it merited God's wrath, we begin to imagine as time goes by in the Christian life that, well, I guess I've always been this fine, upstanding person. And, you know, if everybody else was more like me, boy, this world would be in a lot better shape, right? We may read this passage and we may hear about Matthew and say, wow, I agree with the people of Capernaum. Matthew is a dirtbag, exploiting people, betraying his nation, collaborating with Rome. But when we think like that, friends, we've lost perspective. Because apart from Christ, who are we? We're traitors, like Matthew, but worse. We didn't just betray our nation. We betrayed Almighty God, to whom we owe absolute loyalty. We were collaborators, like Matthew, but worse. We weren't just serving a foreign country. Ephesians 2 says we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. We were collaborators with Satan, unknowingly, but we were still collaborating. Friends, have we not exploited other people? Have we not used others to make ourselves feel good or to get ahead occupationally or financially or sexually? We're no different than Matthew. And once we see that, once we realize that we are guilty, that we deserve judgment, we should be humbled. But this should also endear us to Christ. Because in Luke 7, Jesus says, our love for him ought to be proportionate to the amount that we've been forgiven. And friends, have we not been forgiven so very much? And beyond being forgiven, God has bestowed amazing blessings on us. Listen to Romans 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Believing friends, God has sworn to accomplish his good purposes in you. To take us from our former vile state and make us new. To make us a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, Paul says to Titus. Who become light in this darkened world who someday will reflect the image of the risen Christ in glory. When God has chosen to do that in us, it's amazing. It should make us love him. It made Matthew love him. Matthew became Jesus' disciple and followed him all his days. He became one of the apostles who took the gospel throughout the ancient world. And he wrote this book that we've been studying the last 30 sermons. Corrupt Matthew, the wicked tax collector, got to write one of the four records that has stood for 2,000 years, calling the world to repent. Friends, God was gracious to transform and use Matthew like that. And he will accomplish great works in our lives, too, as we follow him. Because he is great. And because he loves to use unlikely people because it gives him all the glory. All right, we come now to our second point, which is that Jesus has come to spiritually heal sinners. We've got a Bible open, Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. We read, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house. What house? Well, Luke tells us in Luke 5, he says, Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. So we're in Matthew's house, and we are at a great feast. And this shows Matthew's wealth. He can afford a feast. It shows he's got a house big enough to entertain many guests, because we read in verse 10, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came, and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So there's a big feast. It's a big celebration. Now the Greek verb translated reclining here is always used in celebratory contexts. And it speaks of the way that people would eat a big meal back in that setting. And at this celebration, Jesus and his disciples are present. But so are some other people. More tax collectors. Other people called sinners. We don't exactly know who these sinners are, but we should understand them to be disreputable folks in Jewish society. People known for having lifestyles incompatible with the Old Testament law. And this is a famous scene, is it not? Jesus eating with the sinners. But I think because we're familiar with this scene, it may not have the impact on us that it would have had on the original readers 2,000 years ago. So let me paint a picture for you to try and generate the effect that this should have. Imagine you're walking down the street, and you pass by a bar with a seedy reputation. And you look through the window. And there you see me and Marv eating with some local figures associated with organized crime and some prostitutes. Seeing that would probably cause you guys some concern, right? Why? Well, because Christians are prone to think about social interactions with unbelievers in terms of influence and the appearance of propriety. And uh, there are good reasons for that. We'll see both of these are biblical ideas. But first, when we think about how we hang out with unbelievers, sometimes we think about this in terms of influence. So if I see you hanging out with someone I know to be in unrepentant sin, I'm gonna be worried, well, maybe they're gonna influence you to join them in their sin, right? And there are reasons for thinking like that. First Corinthians 15 says, bad company corrupts good morals. But even if you're not up to any wrongdoing in that social interaction, A lot of us would likely say to you, it doesn't really matter what you were doing, because having a social interaction like that just doesn't look good. It's not wise. It creates an appearance of impropriety. And again, there's biblical backing for that. 1 Corinthians 8 kind of talks about a situation like that. So along those, those lines, many people, I think including the vast majority of evangelical Christians, would think very poorly of this sort of a situation today. But in the context of first century Judaism, this would be seen as even worse than that. Because sharing a meal in the ancient world wasn't about being sociable. In the ancient world, to sit down at a table and eat with someone was to say, I'm associated with you. I approve of you. I endorse you. That's why Jews refuse to eat with Gentiles. Because you don't approve of or associate with sinners. But here Jesus is eating with people with bad reputations looked like he was approving of these folks and their conduct. More than that, in first century Judaism, to go into the house of a sinner like Matthew, the corrupt tax collector, would itself be seen as religiously defiling. So here is Jesus, the paragon of holiness and righteousness, and he has brought his disciples into a setting that would have shocked the consciences of many people in his day and our day. What in the world is Jesus doing? Well, we probably aren't the only people to be wondering that. Look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So last week, Jesus has become so influential that religious leaders are taking an interest in him. Not just locally, but they've come up from Jerusalem, intending to scope him out. And tragically, we saw last week that most of these people weren't actually interested in learning about Jesus. They had come up looking for reasons to just write him off. But even after Jesus healed a paralytic and proved that he could forgive sins, these guys didn't look at Jesus with more of an open heart. Instead, they're still looking for reasons to write him off. And so here they are again, lurking in the background of the scene, watching what's happening, muttering about it, Now, these Pharisees would not have dared to enter Matthew's house because they think that would have defiled them. So they probably stayed outside. But they knew Jesus was inside with those unsavory people. And, you know, that made them feel justified in criticizing Jesus. See, we knew he was up to no good. Look at who he hangs out with. And as the Pharisees waited outside and the feast went on, it seems that across the course of the evening a few times, Jesus' disciples had reasons to go outside and then go back in. And when Jesus' disciples would come out, the Pharisees challenged them, saying basically, why does your teacher hang out with scum? They're saying to Jesus' disciples, you should reject Jesus. Look at this ridiculous position he's put you in. Don't you know this shows he's false? But Jesus won't let this stand. And eventually he comes out to confront the Pharisees directly. And friends, the response that Jesus gives here is extremely important. When people talk about this passage, unfortunately, Jesus' response is often overlooked, and it's overlooked for a reason, because if you detach this scene from Jesus' discussion about what is going on, then you can make this scene into a justification for anything. Christian, you're telling me to repent of my sin? Well, Jesus would have been fine with my sin. Jesus ate with sinners, you know. Who are you to admonish me about my life? Jesus sat there in the midst of sinners and didn't correct them. He ate with them, you know. These sorts of claims are made all the time. And they can be sustained if you look at the banquet scene and ignore what Jesus says. But Jesus' explanation in verses 12 and 13 are critical because they properly interpret this scene and they tell us what we need to learn from it. And here's what Jesus says in verse 12. But when he heard it the charge of the Pharisees he said those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick go and learn what this means i desire mercy and not sacrifice for i came to call the right not i came not to call the righteous but sinners first thing jesus does here is he compares himself to a doctor doctors are needed by sick people not healthy people right and who are the sick well, here Jesus isn't talking about physically sick people, but spiritually sick people. People that Paul would later say are spiritually dead. Jesus is talking about people who remain in bondage to sin. Unbelievers. And who are these folks? The folks like the people in Matthew's house. People who are in desperate need of spiritual life. And who can give them spiritual life? Well, We saw last week that Jesus alone mediates God's authority to forgive sin. And so if the people in the house are to have any hope at spiritual life, they need Jesus. And that's Jesus' first answer. Now Jesus' second answer is a good bit more confrontational. Here he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. In Hosea 6, the prophet is writing about people who pretend to be righteous. And he says that there are people who say with their lips, Come, let us return to the Lord. But who are actually, according to Hosea, like Adam. They transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. So the people Hosea is writing about are hypocrites who pay lip service to God, but inwardly scorn him. Who go to the temple and offer a sacrifice for sin, but they do so with unrepentant hearts. And Hosea says, don't think that God cares about your empty worship. Instead, truly love God and demonstrate your love for God by loving other people. That's what Hosea means here when he says God desires mercy and not sacrifice. He's saying God prefers true worship to hypocrisy. And that's what Jesus quotes here. But not only does Jesus quote this passage, but he says to the Pharisees, go and learn it. This is really interesting. Go and learn it was a saying the Pharisees used when they taught their own students, and they said, you missed the point of the passage, go learn it. And Jesus now turns this rebuke against the Pharisees, and he says, Pharisees, Hosea 6 is about people like you. You are the hypocrites with whom God is not pleased, because you have a religion of empty formalism, but no concern for your fellow human beings. You are content to write sinners off to their doom, and you don't want to reach them. Your self-righteousness shows you don't really know God and all of your claims to spirituality are false. And that is Jesus' devastating second answer. Now in his third answer, Jesus just plainly says what he's doing. He says, I came to call sinners, not the righteous. Okay, so Jesus is dining with these sinners to call them. To call them to what? To repentant faith. To discipleship. Same thing Jesus has been preaching since chapter 4. Same thing he just called Matthew to in verse 9. Jesus has been sent into this world by the Father on a a rescue mission to save sinners. And you can't save a sinner if you don't associate with them. If that means that Jesus has to go into some odd places and have some surprising conversations, he's willing to do it because he always obeys the Father. But while Jesus has come for sinners, he has not come for the righteous. Now, who are the righteous? Well, we've got to be careful here. Right? The Bible tells us, apart from Christ, no one is righteous. So he's not talking here about people who are somehow righteous outside of Jesus. No. These are people who imagine themselves to be righteous, but who truly are not. Hypocrites, like the Pharisees, who pretend to a righteousness they don't have. But Jesus told us about them already back in chapter five when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Pharisees totally missed God's standard of righteousness. And we see that in how they respond to Jesus, don't we? They think God is pleased with them. They find no value in Jesus. They think I've already got it figured out. I don't need a savior, thank you very much. And Jesus says that sort of a response, says you are a person that he has not come to call. These sorts of folks will not be saved because they have no recognition of their sin. They have no recognition that God is not happy with them. He is angry about their hypocrisy and their hidden sin. And so they remain under judgment while the sinners that they turn their noses up at will find salvation in Christ. Chapter 23, Jesus is going to say some really hard things to these guys and in chapter 22 as well. Well, I think one of the most stinging thing he says to them in chapter 22 is he says to the Pharisees, you guys, the prostitutes and tax collectors go into the kingdom before you. Man, they would have been incensed by that. But that's the truth. Friends, this is why Jesus is in Matthew's house. We need to understand here, Jesus is not partying it up in some debauched setting participating in, or silently approving of the sin of the folks he was eating with. No. Jesus is having this meal for evangelistic purposes. That's what he says. To reach people, to transform them by inviting them to repentantly trust him. What's more, not only has Jesus come to do this, but he's already succeeded in converting many of these people who were at the feast. Why do I say that? Well, because listen to how Mark describes these guests in Mark 2.15. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Many of the people who were in the house, many of these tax collectors and sinners had at some point prior to the feast already begun to follow Jesus. They weren't who they used to be. Jesus had changed them. He had made them new. And now Jesus celebrates with them because Matthew has joined their number. He has turned from death to life. But the blind Pharisees are incapable of seeing these people as anything more than what they used to be. And so they still call them tax collectors and sinners, even though they have met Jesus and been transformed. So I want you to see that far from the way this passage is often viewed, what we don't find here is a Jesus who is indifferent to sin, who is hanging out with the unrepentant, and who is winking at their misconduct. No. We find here Jesus feasting with repentant people who were already part of his ministry, celebrating Matthew's conversion, and we see him evangelizing the few people who were in the room that had not already been converted, and he's calling them to repentant faith. And that's what's happening in this scene. I've got to say two things here. First, this is an absolute repudiation of elitism. As Christians, it's easy to say, well, we're the righteous, and you unbelievers, you're corrupt It's easy to point to biblical texts about separating ourselves from the world and conclude from all of this, well, I guess we don't ever need to deal with those dirty sinners out there. But Jesus tells us now what he thinks about that line of reasoning. That's not evidence of righteousness. That's evidence of hypocrisy and non-conversion. Because if we are Jesus' disciples, we will follow Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He engaged with sinners. He called them to repent and believe. And you know, Jesus has told us to do that too, right? Final verses of this book, Jesus says, Go make disciples. Those are the Lord's marching orders to us. And we cannot fulfill them by keeping away from sinners. And yes, that may mean that we don't get to seal ourselves away from the world the way a lot of evangelicals do. We may have to have odd and surprising conversations in odd and surprising settings with surprising people. So what? how is us retreating into ourselves ever going to reach anybody for Christ? Honestly, I think at least half of this talk that has been expressed in Christian fundamentalism and evangelicalism in the last 60 years about withdrawing from the world, that is about legitimating our own laziness and desire to stay in our comfort zone. And then we say, well, I'm doing it to be holy. How dare we? We think... We can turn the principle for holiness against the Great Commission? That's not biblical. That's blasphemy. Friends, it's not for us to be the gatekeepers of the gospel. We don't get to decide who has the right background to be worthy of our evangelistic attention. We don't get to use worldly criteria to decide who we should pursue with the gospel. Jesus didn't do that. On what basis do we Our evangelism is not just to be about us reaching people who are ethnically similar to us or who are politically similar to us or who, as far as we can tell, are guilty of the respectable sins, but please don't ask me to evangelize a homosexual or a drug addict or a felon. No, friends. When we think like that, we have forgotten who we were apart from Christ. We We're desperate, wicked, and hopeless, just like the people that need Christ today. We need to evangelize everyone who God brings across our path. That's like who we used to be, that doesn't know Jesus. I need to be be better about this too. We all need to be better about this. This is why we're here. And we must not show partiality. James 2.1 says, do not show the sin of partiality. Instead, we must call everyone everywhere to repent. Now, this leads to a second application I must make here, which is that people often twist this passage against the rest of the Bible. So we saw a command in chapter 7 where Jesus said, do not throw your pearls before pigs, meaning that sometimes you've got to stop pursuing someone evangelistically when it's clear that that person is a settled opponent of the gospel. But some people will say, well, wait, that's being an elitist. If you obey that command, you're deciding who should hear the gospel and who shouldn't. You're being like the Pharisees. But that's not true at all. The command not to cast our pearls before pigs isn't saying that we shouldn't try to reach sinners. No, it's saying after we've tried to reach someone and they've shown us they have a settled, inflexible hostility to the gospel, that's when you let them go their way. Matthew 9 is not contrary to Matthew 7. In the same way, sometimes people turn this passage against the New Testament commands about church discipline in the local church. So passages like Matthew 18 at 1 Corinthians 5 tell us there are times when we must cast persistently unrepentant members out of the church. And when that happens, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5.11, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Jesus says in Matthew 18, when you get to that point, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But then some people come along and say, well, wait a minute. In Matthew 9, Jesus ate with tax collectors. So Paul can't be right in telling us not to meet with people that have been put out of the church. We should ignore Paul's instructions about discipline. That's the argument. But again, that sort of thinking misses a critical nuance here. Here in Matthew 9, Jesus is eating with repentant believers and with unbelievers. In Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, we're not talking about either of those categories of people. We're talking about a third category of people. People who claim to be believers, but who are characterized by unrepentant sin and who are not interested in hearing our appeals for them to repent. And we're not to eat with those people. You say, why? That seems so mean. Well, aren't we writing them off as evil sinners? No. No. Instead, Jesus and Paul tell us we put them out of the church and change how we interact with them socially because that is how we will get through to these people and help them turn back from their sin. That's what Jesus Christ says. And so what we find here is not a scene that Jesus is telling us to become elitists or that it's okay to become sinners or to to affirm sin. That's not the idea. The idea is We've got to be humble enough to remember who we used to be. And we've got to be eager to call everybody, no matter what background they come from, to repentant faith in Christ. Because Jesus can redeem and transform anyone. All right, now we come to our last point, in which we see that Jesus offers his disciples a new and unique, glorious path of joy. Okay, so Jesus and the disciples are having this feast They've been criticized by the Pharisees, but now they get some additional criticism from another group of religious elitists. Look at verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him. Now, John the Baptist, you'll remember, is a significant figure in this book. He had been the first prophet to speak God's word in 400 years. And he had proclaimed the Messiah is going to come and Israel should repent of its sins. And it was in this context of John's ministry that Jesus' ministry emerged. Remember when Jesus was baptized, the Father authenticated him. And John saw Jesus as the Messiah, and John sent some of his disciples to follow Jesus. But shortly after that, John was arrested. And while John was in prison, his remaining followers continued to act as a force within Judaism. And they would do so for many more years, even after John was put to death. So as late as Acts chapter 19... There are disciples from John's movement who run into some early Christians and they don't know anything about the gospel. And this seems to indicate that after John went to prison, his movement continued, but it changed. It was no longer heralding the Messiah. It was just emphasizing the idea of Jewish piety. And with that background, I think we can understand what happens next in our passage. Some of these disciples of John show up and they hear about this feast and they don't like it either. Because Mark's Gospel tells us the time when this feast happened at Matthew's house was a time when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And so while Jesus' disciples are feasting, other groups are fasting. They're abstaining from food for religious reasons. Now, fasting was a huge part of first century Judaism. The Bible only required Jews to fast one day a year. But the rabbis added more and more fasts to the calendar. And this became such a big deal that by the time of the first century, most pious Jews fasted twice a week. Now, a lot of Christian movements today emphasize fasting for various reasons. But we've got to know, biblically, originally, the meaning of fasting in Judaism was to reflect sorrow. Fasting wasn't something you did to enhance your prayer life. It was something you did to humble yourself in lamentation and contrition. So first century Judaism, with this major emphasis on fasting, really gave the religion a sort of melancholic somberness. And we shouldn't be surprised that John's disciples were drawn to that. Because John lived a pretty Spartan, melancholic life, living out in the wilderness eating bugs. He wasn't living the high life. And so his disciples would have been comfortable with this idea of let's fast all the time. But what John's disciples weren't comfortable with was seeing Jesus and his disciples celebrating on a day that they had marked for somber self-denial. And so they criticize Jesus. They say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? See, while fasting was a huge part of first century Judaism, it wasn't part of Jesus' movement. And this is an important point. I said a minute ago, a lot of Christians today emphasize fasting as an essential spiritual discipline The New Testament doesn't say that at all. We find almost nothing about fasting in the New Testament. Jesus fasts once in his ministry during his temptation. The disciples did not fast at all during Jesus' ministry. And the book of Acts mentions it only three times, and that's about it. So I think a lot of the emphasis on fasting in modern Christianity is without biblical warrant. There's very little evidence that this is to be a normal, regular part of the Christian life. And if this is done today, it seems to me, based on what we find, it should be done only in conjunction with lamenting disaster or sin or calling out to God in a time of extreme desperation. But what we see here is what Jesus' disciples are doing is very different than what Judaism around them is doing. And so John's disciples object because they're pious Jews. And they say, this isn't Judaism. What does Jesus say? Verse 15. He said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus says, You're right. My disciples don't fast. And he tells them why. He says it's like being in the wedding party at a wedding. Now the phrase translated here, the wedding guest, is probably not talking about people in the pews at a wedding. This is talking about the groom's inner circle. The groomsmen. Now if you've ever been in a wedding, tell me, is a wedding a time for a bunch of glumness and melancholy? Is it a time to sorrow and lament? Well, maybe if the groom and bride are really mismatched, right? But otherwise, they're supposed to be joyous and fun and happy occasions. But fasting is for sorrow. At a wedding, you don't fast. It's not appropriate for the occasion. And Jesus says, my ministry is like a wedding. He's the groom. The disciples are the groomsmen. And they're together on a happy occasion. So it's wrong to fast. Know the right response is to feast. Now, this picture of Jesus as a groom at a wedding becomes very significant in the New Testament, right? In Ephesians 5, we learn that the relationship between Christ and his church is like that between a husband and his bride. Moreover, the union between Christ and his church anticipates the consummation, which in Revelation 19 is described as the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a, the joy of that year is depicted like a, a, a wedding banquet. And here in Matthew 9, as Jesus is still in the early days of his ministry, which will ultimately culminate with him buying the church with his own blood, we get the sense he's already on his way to win his bride. He's already about the business of the wedding with his groomsmen. And so, yes, it's right to celebrate. And yet, Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. It's an ominous statement. If you were reading this book 2,000 years ago and didn't know how the story was going to go, your ears would perk up at this point. Because this is the first time in the book that something bad happening to Jesus is foreshadowed. He will be taken away. And Jesus doesn't elaborate on what this means here. But Jesus apparently knows at this point where his path is going to end. Yet he doesn't explain it. At some point, the bridegroom will be taken away. I think this is clearly a reference to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. First, because the tone here is very ominous. Second, because Jesus is saying this to John's disciples. And John's disciples hearing this would have thought about their own master recently being arrested. And third, because this statement is presented in the middle of a section in which Matthew is showing us for the first time there is opposition to Jesus. Last week we saw Jesus was rejected for the first time by some Gentiles. We've now seen two incidents where he's run afoul of the religious authorities. And now he has conflict with John's disciples. And we're going to see more and more conflict between Jesus and other people over the ensuing chapters. So I think here for the first time, Jesus is hinting at where his path will lead, which is to the cross. And he says, then, then it will be time to mourn. That's the right time for fasting on those terrible days between Jesus' death and his resurrection. But generally, Jesus' movement distances itself from Jewish practices concerning fasting. And here's what Jesus says about why that is. And this is really important, friends. Verse 16. Here Jesus is going to draw a theological point from some everyday life things that happen. Verse 16. He says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. He says, imagine you've got an old, worn out piece of clothing. If you patch it with the wrong kind of material, you're not strengthening it, you're weakening it. You're making it more susceptible to a bad tear. Verse 17, he says, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Jesus is talking about wine. And the idea is, if you've got new wine, it's going to ferment. And when you put new wine into a leather pouch, a wineskin, the fermenting wine will exert pressure. It will expand against the leather. Now, if you put it in an old pouch, there's no give left in the leather. So when the wine starts to expand, the leather's going to pop and it's, everything's going to get ruined. But if you put the wine into a new pouch, the leather will expand and the wine and the wineskin will be preserved. So, what does that mean? Jesus doesn't spell it out, but I think the idea is clear. Jesus is being charged with violating the customs of Judaism by not fasting. But what he says is, you guys have missed the point. I'm bringing something new. In both of these illustrations, we find Jesus telling us there is something old, something worn out, something that needs to be replaced, something that's basically unsalvageable. And I think in context, that's Judaism, especially Judaism as practiced in Jesus' day with man-made rules and all these fasts. Something like that has limited efficacy and its day is past. Jesus has brought something new. And the new substance Jesus has brought requires a new form, a new container, a new mode of thinking. Not of melancholic legalism, but of joyful freedom. So the old practices of Judaism are not appropriate for the new work Jesus has brought. Friends, this is one reason I am deeply, deeply suspicious of so-called Messianic Judaism, in which Gentile believers try to act like ancient Jews in their worship practices. Okay, That mindset totally misses the truth Jesus says here and what Paul says in Galatians. Jesus is not bringing one more approach to Judaism. Jesus is not even bringing the correct approach to Judaism. Jesus has brought the culmination, the end of Judaism, and he has launched a new and better product, which is the church. And now, that's not to say Jesus is opposed to the Old Testament, right? saw in chapter 5. He says, I haven't come to reject it. I've come to fulfill it. But now he is bringing in what the Old Testament had anticipated and prophesied for centuries. It is Jesus who will bring in the new covenant. It is Jesus who will create a new pathway between man and God. It is Jesus who will impart his spirit to us. It is Jesus who gives spiritual life to those who are dead. It is Jesus who liberates us from slavery to Satan and sin. It is Jesus who vanquishes death. And it is Jesus who will set us free. And so, friends, we don't need to be melancholic people always walking around with frowns on our face, right? We should rejoice. These are wonderful truths. I think we don't have nearly enough joy, and I know I don't, because we are prone to see things through an Old Testament grid as though we're still under the law and we're impotent in the face of its demands, and we better obey or God's judgment's gonna squash us. Friends, that is not the gospel, that is not the Christian life. The gospel is not that we need to clean up our act and and if we are good enough, God will accept us. No. Jesus has lived a perfect, sinless life we cannot live. He has died in our place for our sin. He has taken the penalty we deserve. He is risen and triumphant. And if we turn to Jesus in repentant faith, God will transform us and remake us and give us new life. A life that can obey The directives that Jesus and his apostles have given us. A life that wants to obey because we love Jesus and want to serve him. A life that continually enjoys the grace of God. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yes, we sin, but if we confess our sin, God is faithful and righteous to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is joy to be had in the life that follows Jesus. That's not to say it's an easy road. Jesus has told us it isn't. He's told us there's persecution. He says it's going to cost you everything. He says it's like taking a cross and going to the place of execution. The Christian life is hard at times. It is grueling. But there is joy on this path. Because this path has taken unlikely sinful folks like us and it has healed us. And it gives us all we need for life and godliness. And this path ends with endless joy. A feast that's not unlike the feast in Matthew's house, which will be filled with unexpected guests. Jesus said in chapter 8, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Unexpected people will be saved. The sorts of people we've seen Jesus help in these chapters. Lepers, Gentiles, old women, beggars, sinners, you and me. People society doesn't, doesn't care about. But Jesus loves us deeply. Today, friend, if you've never come to faith in Christ, I would appeal to you to do so because you can be set free. You can be made new. You can have great joy. But those who think, I don't need Jesus, you will find no joy. You will find only judgment for Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The path of salvation is available only through repentant faith and Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection. Nothing else can save us. But believing, friends, let us have some joy today. Maybe you look at your life and you say, I don't have any joy. If that's you, it's because you've taken your eyes off what the Bible says about Jesus and you've fixed your eyes on your circumstances. You've forgotten Jesus will perform what he has sworn to do. He will transform us and he will bring us safely into the new creation. It's easy to forget that sometimes because we are weak and foolish. But, friends, we've got to resist letting what we see govern our lives and our attitudes. We've got to follow the truth about Jesus. And that tells us to rejoice because Jesus has befriended sinners like us. He has transformed us. And by his death, he has opened the way of life and joy and peace.